In the holy name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Today we commemorate St. Gregory of Nyssa, a complicated man to say the least. He was born in Caesarea in Cappadocia around 334 and was the younger brother of St. Basil the Great. Just imagine being the younger brother to someone later to be known as the Great. An opportunity for sibling rivalry, you think? And indeed, such rivalry existed between these brothers. Basil came early to the church. Around 27 years old, he found inspiration from the charismatic bishop and ascetic Eustasius of Sebasti and was baptized in 357. He was later ordained as a deacon at 32, as a presbyter at 35, and as bishop of Caesarea at 40. Gregory, on the other hand, initially resisted ordination in the church, preferring a career as a rhetorician. However, his brother eventually convinced slash coerced him to become bishop of the new see of Nyssa, some would say against Gregory's wishes. Along with their companion, St. Gregory of Naziansis, these Cappadocian theologians, as they would be called, played an instrumental role in the development of Trinitarian theology and the eventual formulation and approval of the Nicene Creed. As you will recall from historical witness, these controversies occupied a great deal of time, energy, and even blood during the fourth and fifth centuries. The disputes were impassioned and rigorous, and it would be a mistake to believe that they only occupied the ecclesiastical elite. Historical records indicate that Arians and Nicenes had competing processions through the streets with banners and chants. One could only wish for such theological concern here in the streets of DC. The breadth and detail of these Trinitarian controversies I will leave to Dr. Mattis, Dr. Sonderager, and our other historical and systematic theologians. But what is important is that it mattered, and it still matters today. One of the temptations that we face is to pit theology against praxis, as if the two were competing. How many students mutter to themselves while reading primary sources or writing papers, why do I have to bother with this stuff anyway? Shouldn't I be learning about pastoral care, congregational leadership, and how to preside at the Eucharist? In those moments of despair, and they are real moments, I hope you will recall from foundations of ministry that those activities are also theological, and they build on the theological work that folk like St. Gregory of Nyssa have passed on to us. There is no divide between theology and praxis. Theology is not the work done in ivory towers and praxis the work done in the streets. Theology and practice interrelate. As we contemplate the mysteries of God, we're inspired to do the work of ministry. As we do the work of ministry, we contemplate the mysteries of God, sometimes, and beautifully, in the very same moments. <clears throat> Let me offer an example of Trinitarian theology that is revolutionary. John Zuzulus is a Greek Orthodox theologian and has written a number of books on Trinitarian theology. 
His seminal work, Being as Communion, speaks to the interrelatedness of the Trinity, what we call in the West the imminent Trinity, and how that affects our understanding of personhood. Now, let me be clear that Zizoulis builds on the work of St. Gregory of Nyssa and the Cappadocian theologians, but does not necessarily represent them. Some scholars would say he even distorts their teaching, perhaps even scholars right in this very room. His views have been described as social Trinitarianism and can be quite controversial. Imagine that. Zazulis argues that Western theology has made a distinction between essence and hypostasis that is unhelpful. Western theology posits that God's essence precedes God's hypostases. One might think of God's essence as being godness and God's hypostases as being the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we have a godness that becomes instantiated in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Again, Zazulis may be creating a caricature of Western theology. Eastern and Western theologians are both quite susceptible to that temptation. For Zizoulis, there is no godness that precedes hypostases. There is no being, no essence that precedes personhood. God is God by being Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is only God by being in communion. Personhood establishes being, not the other way around. In other words, the Father can only be God the Father because the Son is eternally begotten from the Father and the Spirit proceeds from the Father. The Son can only be God the Son by being eternally begotten of the, fa eternally begotten of the Father and the Holy Spirit can only be God the Holy Spirit by eternally proceeding from the Father. Yes, we have the filioque controversy here, but let's stay focused. God is God because of the relationships among the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not because of some preceding essence. So now that I have your head spinning with essence, hypostases, begottenness, and processions, and all that before your first cup of coffee, why does this matter? Well, first and foremost, it matters because we are contemplating God. Theology, in its essence, is the contemplation of God. As we seek to worship and adore God, we seek to know God and be known by God. Such contemplation is worthy of our time and effort, full stop. In addition, it's important because we are made in the image of God, the imago Dei. Zizoulis picks up on his argument here and extends it to our personhood. And here is when it gets radical. He argues that, like God, humanity has no essence, no being that precedes personhood. There is no humanness without human beings. And, now buckle your pew belts, we only become truly human in relationship with the other. Zazulis argues that isolation from God and from the other is death. Eternal life is to be in relationship with God and to the other through love. Just as the Holy Trinity are in an eternal relationship of love, we also can enter that eternal relationship of love through the grace of the Trinity, acting in and through us. 
Just as love binds the Trinity, love binds us to the Trinity and to each other. This understanding of Trinitarian theology and the Mago Dei reminds us of the source of our value. Descartes famously declared, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. In doing so, he influenced Western thought immensely and led us on a path that suggests that our personhood is intrinsic to our ability to think. I am a person because I have rational thoughts. I am a person only from the head up. Another strong influence on contemporary thinking is our capitalist system in the West. This system says that I have value based on what I consume. The more I can consume, the more valuable I am. Similarly, Marxist thought suggests that I have value based on what I contribute. If I contribute more to society, then I am more valuable. In many ways, they are but flip sides of the same coin. I am valuable based on what I produce. But Trinitarian theology, like a two-edged sword, plunges itself into the heart of both these lies. Our humanity is not based on our ability to think or our ability to produce. Our humanity is based on love. First we are loved, and then we love. Please hear that, my friends, because we can so easily turn love into just another product. Oh, what if I don't love enough? Am I not human then? What if I'm having a bad day and bark at my spouse because he didn't put away the dishes? Am I not human? Now we've turned love into a product, something we generate that somehow acts on another. Love is being, period. God loves us as we are, period. We love as we are in all our imperfections, period. And we love the other as they are in all their imperfections, period. To be fully human is to be loved and to love. Now, I've been up here in the heights of theological discourse. I'll readily admit I love those heights. They can be exhilarating. But there is also a time to get nitty-gritty, and that time has come. Admittedly, I could offer examples of our need to love those less fortunate than we, or those who are oppressed. I could mention the need to love the Ukrainians and the Russians at this time. Those are important examples. They need our love and our prayers. I find such examples easily keep me off the hook, though, because they can be so abstract. They're not. They're real people with real lives and real tragedies. But the distance and lack of embodied interaction offer me a way to make them abstract. And that's why community is so important, because as we well know, there is nothing abstract about community, particularly this beloved community right here at VTS. Imagine with me for just a moment what transformation could take place if we interacted with each other, not as disembodied minds or means of production, but rather as subjects of love. How would we relate to our staff if we saw them not as the producers of our food, the cleaners of our offices, and the repairers of our home, but as beloved of God? 
How would we relate to our faculty if we see them not as purveyors of information, members of committees or judges for tenure, but subjects of love? How would we relate to our students if we saw them not as empty vessels to fill with knowledge, competitors for grades, CXM sites, and yep, now I'm meddling, jobs, but subjects of love? What? A transformation. And I see that transformation happening all over this campus through the grace of God. In small conversations as we break bread together in the refectory, in heartfelt discussions in the classroom, in acts of kindness offered in times of need, we love each other as God first loved us. Yes, there will be days when our human finitude catches up with us and we get grumpy and tired and impatient. Welcome to being human. But love awaits us, ready to restore our true humanity and bring us back into communion with each other. My friends, you are beloved of God. Let that love transform you as you love one another. Amen.